You may be seated if you can. Can we just thank this worship team this morning? Praise God. It's just good to be in the presence of the Lord. We had the choir up there, but we had the choir out here today, man. You guys are singing like you believe it. Uh, Such a blessing uh, to continue to worship the Lord as we turn to his word. Amen. We believe here that God speaks through his word. It's living and it's active. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, today we're going to begin there in verse 7 in just a few moments, but we've been in the book of Acts for for a little while, since January, right? And so I want to do a little review this morning. The book of Acts was written by who? Luke, okay, thank you. Luke, it is the the sequel, really, to the gospel of Luke. It's volume two of his historical writings. And so the, the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem where the gospel of Luke leaves off. But Acts is gonna end in the city of Rome where Paul will be a prisoner for two years under house arrest. That's where it's going. But I believe as we continue to journey through the book of Acts here, that Luke has a plan. There's a, there's a purpose to his madness, if you will. He has a plan as he writes the book of Acts. He wants to show us that the hope of the world that was centered in Jerusalem moved from Jerusalem to the center of the world at that time, which was Rome. And the events that happened in Jerusalem at a place just outside of the city walls, we were there not too long ago, but what happened there is the pinnacle of redemptive history. We know that Jesus died on a cross as a common criminal. He was taken down, he was placed in a tomb, and three days later he rose from the dead, amen? And so the hope of life changed, began there in Jerusalem, outside the walls of Jerusalem that day. And so Luke picks it up in Jerusalem and he shows how the Holy Spirit is continually moving through the people of God once Jesus ascended into heaven. And, and so he wants to show how that hope that changes lives in Jerusalem can also change lives in Rome, but how many of you know it can change your life today as well, amen? He continues to change lives. And so the theme of the book of Acts could be stated in a little phrase, from Jerusalem to Rome. Write that down. If you're taking notes, from Jerusalem to Rome. And we're right in the middle of, of that, that transition here as we come into chapter 20. Paul, the great apostle, is on his third and final missionary journey. He wants to go to Jerusalem. He has purposed in his spirit to go back to Jerusalem. And so he begins this journey. He goes over these areas of Galatia and Phrygia and, and some of the same areas he's been before. He stops at Ephesus. He doesn't spend much time there. He goes through Macedonia, and then he goes to Troas. And this is going to be Paul's final return trip to Jerusalem. And so along the way, he stops to see the believers in Troas. And, and it says there that he stays for one week. And on Sunday, the church gathers together in the evening for a communion meal, and, and Paul's going to share with them what he believes to be his last message to them. Verse 7 says this, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together, Luke is with him obviously, we were gathered together to break bread. They're going to have a meal, and, and communion at that point was not what we think of, just a little bread and a cup. They have a meal, and then they break the bread together, and they remember what Christ did for them. It says, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, this is the first real example we have of believers making a practice to gather together on the first day of the week for fellowship and the word. 
Although here it appears that they gathered in the evening because you have to remember at that point Sunday was just a normal working day for them. This was before the invention of the weekend, okay? So Saturday was off, but Sunday they're working and they come together in the evening. And and, and remember this, that many of the early Jewish believers did not see themselves as separate from Judaism but fulfilled in their Judaism because of the work of Jesus Christ, And so it's likely that they would have continued to go to the synagogue on Saturday, and then they would gather together on a Sunday evening. Now, sometimes people ask the question, why do Christians worship on Sunday when the Sabbath is Saturday, right? If you're familiar with the Seventh-day Adventists, they focus on the importance of gathering on Saturday. Again, they see that as the biblical Sabbath. Now, I would agree with that in one sense. But we gather together on this day because we know the early church gathered on this day because it is the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the tomb, amen? It's also the day that the Spirit was poured out on the church. Now, some say that Sunday became the new Sabbath under the new covenant, but to be honest, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. When we talk about a biblical Sabbath, Saturday has always been the biblical Sabbath. Okay, nowhere in God's word does it say that Sunday is a new Sabbath. So then the question is, are we, what are we supposed to do now as Christians in regards to keeping one holy day a week? We're not. As believers, we were never commanded to keep a holy day from the standpoint of taking just one day and setting it aside. There's no instruction for a biblical holy day in the New Testament. And the matter of fact is this, now every day, Every single day is sacred unto the Lord. I mean, if you want to take a day and set it aside, that's all good and fine. Just don't put it on someone else and say, well, you got to do it on this day, right? Look at what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 5. He says, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If you want a proof text for a holy day of the week, that's it, right? And and so you can say, oh yeah, I I worship on Saturday, that's great. Oh, I worship on Sunday, that's perfect. Just don't go around putting that on other people and saying, this is the day that you have to worship. Saying this is the way you have to worship, right, becomes this form of legalism, if you will, around the Sabbath. Again, in the New Testament, every day is holy unto the Lord, every single day. Look at what Paul writes to the Galatians. He writes to this church that it begins to fall back into legalism, right? They're, they're getting legalistic. And so this is what Paul said when he found out what they're doing. He says this, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm beginning to think I wasted my time with you guys, <laughs> Because I shared the gospel and you're going back to the law, right? You're going back to legalism. You're going back to special days and, and special weeks and special seasons. Like, didn't you learn anything while I was with you? And really, the key passage related to this whole argument of a specific Sabbath day, I don't know if you've gotten into that argument. Maybe you've talked with a friend who is Seventh-day Adventist, but you can kind of go back and forth. But this is a key text. Look at this, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 Paul writes these words, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a what? Sabbath, right? And then he says this, these are a shadow of the things that are to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul was really saying here is that those festivals and those feasts and those special holy days, understand this, they all find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. 
And so in essence, we keep all of those things by our faith in Jesus Christ. And so if anyone asks you, do you keep the Sabbath? You can say, absolutely, I keep the Sabbath every single day, amen? Because every one of those Old Testament laws are done in Christ because they're fulfilled in Christ. And so every day is a day of our Sabbath rest before God. Every day is a day, think about this, where we get to rest from our striving to somehow earn our own righteousness and we rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, amen? And so this picture this, Paul is thinking, he's meeting with these believers, he's thinking, this might be my last time in Troas. And so he's pouring out his heart, he thinks, man, I might never see these guys again, and I can only imagine that room that he's in is packed, and Paul keeps preaching until midnight. And Luke, being the physician that he is, he makes note of something there in verse eight. I don't know if you caught this, but Luke has to point this out. He says, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. You read that, you're like, what's the point of that, right? But he wants to let you know. It was pretty hot in that room up there. The the lamps are burning, the oxygen's out of the air. It's the perfect place for a nap. Verse nine, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting at the window and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So he's going past midnight. Can I I just tell you how much comfort this verse brings me as a preacher? Like, I draw no small comfort from the fact that people fell asleep under the preaching of the Apostle Paul, right? Because I gotta be honest, sometimes I'm up here and I'm pouring my heart out and I'm like, I'm going for it and I look at you guys and one or two of you are doing this. Right? And and, and no judgment here, no judgment. I'm just glad you're here, okay? Maybe next week drink a Red Bull, but I'm glad you're here. Man, even if you only get half a message, that's, that's better than nothing. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, I would rather you come and get half a meal than get none at all, right? But honestly, this verse comforts me. It comforts me to know that people fell asleep during the preaching of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> wow, okay, a little weight taken off, right? Understand, I believe it's my responsibility to study the word of God and to, to preach the word of God in a way that's engaging, in a way that's exciting, right? But there are times when it all comes together, I'm like, this message is so good, and some of you are still doing this, right? But again, if someone fell asleep under the preaching of Paul, I'm not troubled if you fall asleep when I preach. Sleeping in church isn't a good thing, but it's something pastors have always had to deal with. I heard a story of John Wesley he, he was preaching one time in a church and he noticed a guy in the back row that was nodding off. Now, if you're gonna nod off, that's the best place to do it, okay? It's kind of awkward if you're on the front row and your head's back and your mouth's open. I mean, there's been some men's retreats where guys are just snoring. It's kind of awkward, all right? Um, but he sees this guy, John Wesley sees this guy on, on, the, on the back row and he, he stops for a moment and he looks at this guy and then he yells out, fire, fire, fire. And the man wakes up in a shock, well, where's the fire? And Wesley says this, I would never say it, Wesley said this, he says, fire in hell for those who sleep under the preaching of the word of God. <laughs> wow, right, I wouldn't say that. Can I just say today, sleeping in church isn't good, but let me be clear today, it's not the worst kind of sleep in the Christian life. The word of God speaks of some who essentially sleepwalk through their Christian life. Paul talks about it in a number of places. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He's saying, let us stay aware. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Understand, Paul's not talking about your conduct in church meetings here. He's talking about your conduct in life. 
He's talking about the way you live your Christian life. And sadly today, too many Christians in too many churches are asleep at the wheel. And when you're sleeping, man, let's just be honest, when you're sleeping, you're ignorant of anything going on around you. You're not very smart when you're sleeping, right? You're not very sensible when, of what's happening around you. If you're sleeping, you have no defense. Someone could slap you on the face, no defense, right? You did not see that coming. And when you're sleeping, you are inactive. You're just lying there. You're doing nothing. Now, it's okay if that's the characteristic of those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, but it should never be the characteristic of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. It should never be said of the church that we're asleep at the wheel. And, and here's the reality. As politics have become more about morality than policy, we need to wake up to the fact that Christ cannot be confined to his church. We need to understand that Christianity is, is an all-encompassing faith. God's commands in regards to morality must go beyond the church and permeate into every area of our life, including politics. Got real quiet in here all of a sudden. Remember Jesus said this. He said, all authority has been given to him in heaven and where? And on earth. And he says, therefore, go. Don't think this morning that God's moral law has no authority to govern the state. It does, and we need to continue to push back on anyone who would say otherwise. Right now, we're in the midst of a national crisis, and I believe the church needs to wake up and the church needs to respond. Oh, thank you, bud. Right now, there is, and I'll just draw your attention to this, there is a bill called H.R. 8404, and this is not a, a Democrat issue, Republican issue, there's bipartisan support for this bill. But I want you to be aware of what it is. It, it, it's deceptively being called a Respect for Marriage Act. And supporters of this bill will tell you it's all about giving equal rights for same-sex marriage, which right there should cause the church to say, hold on a second, because the world does not get to define the God-ordained institution of marriage. God already defined it in his word, right? But, but really, what this bill will do, if it passes, it will place every Christian who stands for God's design for marriage in jeopardy of being harassed, sued, fired, or worse, under the guise of discrimination. This bill, the Respect for Marriage Act, is a perfect example of why we cannot sleep right now, church. It's a perfect example of why we should be involved in politics and in public policy. Like, how can we stand back and expect those who disregard God and his authority to make right decisions about what is best for humanity, right? The church ought to lift its voice because if we don't stand for truth, if we don't stand on the word of God, the world is going to continue to struggle to discern what is right and what is wrong. And so H.R. 8404 is making its way through the Senate. In fact, it passed its initial debate with bipartisan support, 62 to 37 vote. If the bill clears final passage in the Senate, it will be sent back to the House. And so what do we do? Here's what I want to encourage you, church. Don't, don't think your voice doesn't matter. Begin to lift your voice and wake up. Urge your Congress members to vote no on H.R. 8404. If we're going to stand on the truth of the word of God, we cannot be silent on this. If you go to our Facebook page, you'll find a post there with a link. Even our Instagram story, you'll find a link with more information about this bill. And, and, and you can let your voice be heard right there. You can be right there uh, reach out and contact your Congress members. Let them know, I'm not in favor. I'm not in favor of this bill. Because hear me, sleeping in church is bad but sleeping in life is far worse, right? 
And, and so here in Acts, this young man, Eutychus, he's, he's nodding off. And, and I mean, he's right by an open window. I'm like, come on, if you're that tired, don't sit by an open window, right? It says, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Poor Eutychus. This is the only time his name is mentioned in scripture and it's to tell us that he fell asleep in church, right? I think all of us would love to have our names in the Bible, but not for that, okay? This young man was, was, was likely in his teens. He had worked all day. He's doing his best to stay awake. Maybe that's why he's by the open window. Maybe there's a, a breeze coming in, but he can't keep his eyes open. He falls out of the window and he dies. I mean, that's definitely something that could put a damper on a good service, right? Now, some of the commentators say the wind was just knocked out of him or that he was knocked unconscious. But remember who's writing this letter. It's Luke, and he's a physician. And one of the things that doctors know is when someone is dead. So I trust Luke on this one, right? And then, and then Paul does what we see many of the Old Testament prophets did, right? Both Elijah and Elisha were described as bending over the dead, and they were used by God to bring them back to life. And so Paul calms everyone down. He says there's life in the boy still. He's alive. And then he says, and let this be a warning to you, never to fall. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> like, there's no condemnation in his message. I, I think Paul knew what we know today, that sometimes the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? And so God has mercy on this young man, Eutychus, and, and from that day on, he wasn't allowed to sit at windows anymore. I'm sure it was an ongoing joke in the church of Troas. Get Eutychus away from the window, or come sit over here, right? But check out what happens in verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread in Eden, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So he's raised to life. What do they do? It's past midnight at this point. They say, let's go up and eat again, right? I love it. It's like an Italian household. Let's go eat again, right? And so they get up there and they have the communion meal and then they're talking all night. Here's the truth. If you and I had the opportunity to speak with the Apostle Paul, we might stay up all night too, right? Tell me, Paul, what's going on? Tell me about the ministry. I heard you're writing a letter to the church in Rome. Like, how's that going? How's that coming out, right? They're encouraged. Eutychus is revived. They see this miracle happen. They're encouraged. They're comforted. They get their second wind, and so they stay up all night. They, they break night. They break night fellowshipping together, and Paul knows, and they know this might be their very last time together. Verse 13, but going ahead to the ship, he set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. It's interesting. I, I never really noticed this verse before, right? When I've read through the book of Acts, read through it many times. But this is one time in Paul's ministry where he intentionally goes it alone. He, he sends everyone else by ship and he says, I'm gonna walk, guys. I'm gonna go by land. Now, why does he do this? Well, we see in just the next passage that Paul knew that persecution was waiting for him in Jerusalem. And so I think he wants some time alone to pray. He wants some time alone probably to pray for strength and to pray for courage because, again, he knew what was ahead of him. And when you look at the ministry of Paul, understand the great majority of it was spent with other men who served with him. Since the very first time that he was sent out by the Holy Spirit, he has others around him, except for that short time that he was in Athens, right? And I say that to say that we need one another, church, we need one another. We're not called to do this alone. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, right? 
We're not called to do this alone. But we also need those times, every one of us, when we need to get along with God. There are those times in life where, man, I just need solitude. I need to get alone with God and, and I need to hear his voice. I need the encouragement of his, his voice, especially when we know we're gonna face something difficult. We need to hear his voice. His voice makes all the difference. This is similar to Jesus' time, I see, in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepared for the cross. Verse 14 says, and when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. That's still his goal, right? Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So now we're back to these we verses. Luke is, is traveling with him. And it's amazing because Luke gives us account of every stop. We stopped here, we stopped there, we stopped here, right, all along the way. Uh, again, Paul's plan is to go to Jerusalem. Paul wants to be there in time for Pentecost. And so in order to save time, he asks the Ephesian elders, he sends a note, letter to them and says, hey, could you guys just meet me down in Miletus? It would save me some time on my journey. It's about a two or three day journey for them and they come and they meet him there. It says in verse 18, and when they came to him, these are the elders of the church in Ephesus, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul had already shared so much of his life with the church, but he continues to teach, he continues to encourage, but understand this, his life was the most influential message. And it's the same for each one of us. Our manner of life is the most influential message we will share. And so he says, I, I want you to remember how I lived among you. This is not Paul boasting. He's really sharing his heart. He wants to see the church in Ephesus continue. So he says, guys, look at my example. This is how I was. He says, you saw my example day in and day out. I, I worked in the mornings. I taught all afternoon. I visited the house churches in the evening. And, and every one of these elders who spent time with Paul knew that, man, this was a guy who was zealous for the Lord. He was passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they also knew this, that even though there were threats against Paul's life, he didn't back off. He continued to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says to them, you guys know how I lived among you. I don't have to say anything more. You saw my life. And I, I wonder when our time comes, can we say to others, you know how I lived among you. You saw my life. I serve the Lord faithfully, right? It's a good question for each of us to ask, right? What would people say of us? Would they say they saw in our lives a love for the Lord and a love for others? Would they say that we lived our lives uncompromising the truth of God's word, right? That we extended forgiveness? That we were gracious to someone? If so, understand that is the fruit of the Spirit of God at work in our lives, and I know today that we don't measure up to Jesus. We don't even measure up to Paul. I mean, he sets a high bar, right? But I do pray that as a church, we would grow in the grace of the Lord so that our testimony is increasingly a witness to the life of Christ at work within us. And, and so this is Paul's testimony, verse 20. He says, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. 
Now, when he says that, shrink from declaring, he means to pull back or withdraw. And here's the challenge for each one of us in our own lives. We want to spend our time doing what we want to do, right? But if our lives are surrendered to the Spirit, there's times that he's going to call us to serve others and give of our time and our resources to other needs, right? And so it's really the Christian walk is a matter of dying to the self and letting the life of Christ live through you. You see, Paul knew how to share about those things that were spiritually profitable, and he did it by teaching the Word of God. We talked last week about how he gathered together in the hall of Tyrannus, right? And he taught in the house churches. And, and here's what he's teaching. It consisted of verse 21. He says this, I testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's theme song. It should be our theme song too, Right? we should not shrink back from declaring that everyone everywhere in every culture is a sinner who's destined for God's wrath. And because of that, we need to recognize that God has provided Jesus for us as our substitute, right? He's our propitiation. He's the one who took the heat that we deserved. And when Jesus went to the cross, he bore that wrath that you and I deserve. And so today, by faith in what he's done for us, we can exchange our sins for his righteousness. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good trade to me, right? I want to get in on that. And that's the heart of the gospel. It's the good news that we continue to proclaim. Verse 22, and now behold, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So get this, he's headed towards Jerusalem, and every church he stops at, there's a prophetic word. Hey, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, there's imprisonment and there's afflictions waiting for you, right? And with all those warnings, you kind of wonder, Paul's journeying toward Jerusalem, I kind of wonder, is he being disobedient to what he's hearing? I mean, there's plenty of warnings that you're getting, Paul. But this verse clearly tells us that he was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. The literal translation is he was forced to go. So then you ask the question, well, why all the warnings from the Spirit about what's ahead of you if the Spirit's leading you to go there anyway, right? Like, God, what's the point of the warning if that's the way you want me to go anyway, well, I believe the warnings helped to prepare his heart for what was coming. Because even with all the warnings, he still has this vision, I'm gonna go to Rome. But he's getting these warnings, and here's a man who's been through a lot. I don't know if PTSD comes up, because he's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's been dragged out of cities, and now he's going to a city, knowing as he goes back to Jerusalem, that that's what's waiting for him. But remember, at this point, Paul had already, already written his letter to the Romans, right? And so he already declared and he already knew that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so if the Holy Spirit is leading me to a place where I'm going to face imprisonment and torture, then I'm going to trust that God has a plan and a purpose even in that. Listen, I, I know when you receive bad news or when there's something on the horizon that's, that's coming, it can be very unsettling. But as a child of God, here's what you need to know today. You are in God's hands. Your life is in God's hands. And so whatever he has allowed or whatever he is allowing, no matter how difficult it may be, is ultimately for your good and for his glory. And you might not understand it right now. You're scratching your head saying, God, what is going on? 
You, you may not understand it until you reach the other side, but I want you to know that you can be certain today that our Heavenly Father is faithful and he's powerful. He has not given up control today. He's still in charge, amen? His steadfast love does not fail and his faithfulness does not fail, right? And so this is what gives us courage. This is what ought to give us courage, church, to face the future, even if it's a difficult future. But listen to Paul's conviction and and his dedication in verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. When we talk about doing the will of God and living sold out for Christ, you know what so often hinders us from doing that? It's this. It's that our lives are too precious to us. Our, our lives are too precious for us, and, and so we want to keep all of it for ourselves. Right? I got too many things to do. I can't give God that much of my life. I'm going to hang on to this. A.W. Tozer said it this way, the weakness of so many Christians is they, they feel too much at home in the world. But we need to understand that if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, that our life was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And according to Ephesians chapter two, God has good works that he's planned in advance for us to do. He's planned out in advance for us to do. And I thank God today that, that those works are a blessing because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And, and so in reality, the joy of fellowship with, that we get with God as we walk in his plan and his purpose is worth every sacrifice that he might call us to make. Paul says, I only want to do one thing. I want to finish my course. I I want to carry out the ministry that that God gave me to do. And if that means I have to go to Jerusalem and, and, and face persecution and imprisonment, so be it. Look what he says there, verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. That's pretty hard to take. This is fair. He said, I know this. We're never going to see each other again. And I can only imagine the amount of tears that were being shed in that place because he loved these people to the point of giving of his life for them. And that's what you and I do when we proclaim the gospel, when we give of our time and we give of our life. But Paul never did this out of duty. He always did it out of a love for Jesus Christ and out of a love for others. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole, God, the whole counsel of God. What is Paul saying here when he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all? You're like, what in the world are you talking about, Paul? Well, he's reminding them of a passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 3 through 5, that tells us that if we warn people to turn from their wicked ways and they don't do it, then we're innocent because we've done our part, Right? And then he uses this term shrink back again, but this time he's talking about the whole counsel of God. Paul's saying, when I was with you, I didn't skip over the difficult issues. I I, I didn't hesitate to call sin, sin, because I was worried about offending somebody. He was bold and he was loving enough to tell people the whole message of the gospel. And can I just say, church, that's how we need to be. But, But the tragedy today is that so much of the church is shrinking back from the truth because they were worried the truth might offend. And I just have to say this, in a world of lies, I guarantee you the truth will offend. 
I guarantee you the truth will offend. Don't try to be offensive, but you speak the truth, it will offend. To those living in lies, truth will always offend. And if your goal in life is simply to be unoffensive, then Christianity is probably not for you. Paul says, I never held back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And then he, he gives a word of warning to these elders. And this is a weighty word. It's a weighty word for myself. It's a, a weighty word for all of our elders here at Grace Point. Verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And, and so he understands this, the, the, the elders are the overseers of the church. And so he says this to the leadership. He says, first of all, you need to watch your own life so that you don't compromise your integrity, that you, you're always setting an example. Truthfully today, I gotta say, I thank God for what he's called me to do. I thank God for what he's called the elders of this church to do. But I also know that he holds us accountable to a greater extent than most because we're called not only to teach truth but to live as an example. And that's, that's a serious responsibility. That, that's a weighty responsibility. I know one day I'm gonna have to give account to God for how I handled the position that he's put me in. Elders, leaders, we need to sit under the weight of that. But here's what Paul knows is going to happen. He says, I, I, I don't know if he's, if he's speaking from experience or what happened before or if this is a prophetic word, but look at verse 29. He says this, here's what I know. After my departure, after I leave, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The prophet Ezekiel and Jeremiah both prophesied about false shepherds who would use the sheep only for personal gain. Verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. In other words, they're going to take the truth and they're going to twist it to draw away disciples after them. Unfortunately, even within the church, there are those tares among the wheat who will seek power only for personal gain. And this can happen uh, even with those who are appointed as elders in the church because we know that power corrupts, right? And, and unless we continue to humbly seek the Lord's leading and honor others above ourselves, we can all fall into this trap. Verse 31, therefore, be alert. There it is again. Wake up. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish. That means to build up every one of you with tears. I was building you up, I was encouraging you with tears, right? So because there's this tendency to be drawn away or be corrupted, we need to watch out. But remember how Paul served these people. His, his heart was broken for them. He's looking out for their interests and not his own. He gave so much of his time and his life out of a love for the Lord and a love for them. He used whatever time God gave him in that place to build up God's people for God's glory. And all the while, he's laying up this treasure in heaven. What a great example the Apostle Paul is for us. Amen. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Listen to what he says about the word of God. It's able to build you up and it's able to give you an inheritance. You see, Paul may have, have worried, okay, there's wolves that are coming. I'm gonna warn you about those wolves, but in my absence, there's not too much I can do other than pray and, and, and trust God, right? And so he places them in God's hands and he trusts the word of God to build them up. So listen, there, there's a lot that I could say on a Sunday morning. There's a lot I could teach from my own life, but more than anything, I wanna week by week open the word of God before you week after week because I trust the word of God. 
I trust the word of God to build you up, right? I trust the word of God to give you an inheritance. I love that. Paul's hope is, man, I'm gonna leave you guys. I'm never gonna see your face again, but I know the word of God's gonna continue to sanctify you as the people of God until the day that God calls you home. And that's my hope for us as well, that the word of God would sanctify us as the people of God until the day he calls us home, amen? Verse 33, as the worship team comes, it says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. While he was in Ephesus, so much of the time, uh, Paul supported himself, right? In some places, he received support from the churches, but he didn't want anyone to ever think that he was preaching simply for personal gain. He never wants anyone to question his motive, right? In First Timothy, he does tell the church, support your pastors, support your elders, give generously to those who labor in the work of the Lord. But here he's saying, I, you know, you know my heart and all this. And then verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Would you stand with me today as we prepare to close? I want you to think about these verses as we close today. Because to me, this, this must have been a powerful prayer meeting. <laughs> I can only imagine the, the hugs and the kisses and the tears. See, the love that Paul had for the church was evident, and I believe it's the kind of love we should have for one another in this place. The elders for the flock, the flock for the elders, each and every one of us for one another. It's evident that the, in the early church, their hearts were knit together. They were living out Jesus' command from John chapter 15, right, to love one another. And so as we close this passage, I wanna encourage you in just a few ways today. First of all, I want to encourage you and I want to ask that you would, you would pray for your elders, myself included. Please, we covet your prayers. Because one day we're going to answer to God for how we oversaw his flock, right? And, 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 and how, how we did that. We're not perfect, I can tell you that right away. We're flawed individuals. We make mistakes. But I hope you know today that our heart is for you and our heart is with you. I love this church. I love what God's doing here. When I look at Paul's life, man, the apostle Paul, I'm like, bro, you set a really high bar. You love the church. You, you were dedicated to it. And why? Because the life of Christ was, was at work within him. And so I pray today, God, may more of your life live in and through me. But secondly, I want to encourage you in your love for one another because this is so important. We're gonna talk more about this next week, but understand this, we have a culture that downplays the importance of this as an essential ingredient in the church. We have a culture that just says, stay home and watch your favorite preacher, right? But we need each other. We need the body of Christ. Scripture says that God is love, and so we know today that if we are in Christ, we live his command of loving one another as he has loved us. And so with heads bowed around this room, I want you to ponder this fact for just a moment. I want you to think about it for just a moment. Because it's likely there are areas in your life where you realize today, man, I'm, I'm not so loving. <laughs> 
I'm probably more selfish. If that's the case today, here's the solution to selfishness. It's simply to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you with the love that Jesus has for his people. Because that, that is a selfless love. That is a, a sacrificing love. And so the fullness of the Spirit in your life will include a unselfish love for others. And so today, as we close, if you say, man, there's a lack in my life in that area, just begin to ask the Holy Spirit, even right now. Just ask the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh and anew. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Maybe you've tried to work it up on your own. Maybe you've grown impatient or unloving. I believe today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to fill you afresh and anew to make you that, that person that would love others with, without conditions that would make you love others when they're hard to love. The Holy Spirit can do that today. And so as we close, just ask the Holy Spirit, even right now, say, Spirit, fill me. Fill me afresh and anew. Hallelujah.